Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be rejoined by Sean O'Connell. Sean, uh, we had him on to talk about his uh, book about the Snyder Cut that came out. Was that last year? Was that am I, Has it already been a year? March that... of, of 2021. Yeah, yeah. March yeah. of 2021. Wow. Time flies. Uh, we, had him, <laughs> we had him on to discuss that book. Uh, he is back to discuss his new book, With Great Power, How Spider-Man Conquered Hollywood During the Golden Age of Comic Book Blockbusters, uh, which is out now. You can you can get it for the spider fan in your life. Put it in under the Christmas tree in the stocking. It'll be it's a nice um, it's a nice compendium, kind of ex- explaining uh, Spider Man's place in the uh, cinematic landscape and ecosystem, and kind of contextualizing it with everything else that is going on. Sean, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Of course, happy to be here. Uh, so let's talk. Let's talk about Spider-Man movie star. Um, and before we get to the, you know, the first big uh, Spider-Man movie in 2002, directed by Sam Raimi, there were all sorts of uh, starts and stops, and you know, uh, things that people kind of half remember but don't quite <laughs> fully understand. So, what what was the actual first Spider movie out there? Well, they the first one technically goes to two episodes of the uh, the Nicholas Hammond television show that ran in the 1960s, uh, and that show was kind of produced because uh, Bill Bixby's um, Incredible Hulk show was popular. And they were trying to get Marvel uh, characters to sh- uh, show up in prime time, but the Hammond show never really caught on. He blames scheduling. He just blames that like they never had a consistent time to air. Uh, you would get an episode in October, and then the next one might not be till December. So. The audience never really knew when to tune into it. But what um, the network did was they packaged two episodes together and they would show them as movies in international territories. So um, in the UK and in Mexico, uh, there would be uh, fans who thought that they were seeing a Spider-Man movie. And then Hammond uh, would tell me, actually, I got a chance to speak with Nicholas Hammond for the book. And he would say he would go to these uh, comic book conventions around the world and get approached by fans to sign like these movie stand-ups or movie posters because to them they were seeing the first Spider-Man movie. And I have a really close friend of mine who grew up in Mexico um, who who didn't think that the Sam Raimi movie in 2002 was the first Spider-Man movie because he was like, no, 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 I remember distinctly going to a theater as a kid and seeing this Spider-Man on the big screen. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that goes to show why he's such a worldwide phenomena and how early people were getting a chance to see him on the big screen. Well, there's there's an interesting chicken and an egg uh, situation in your book that you discuss a little bit. Was Spider-Man is Spider-Man popular because he's popular or was he popular because he was licensed everywhere? I mean, this is it's an interesting story about the early years of Marvel. And it's one of the reasons, frankly, why the spider rights are so such a mess is because they were Marvel was selling rights to spider stuff everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And Sunday, the thing is, I don't have the answer to that. Uh, I'm not sure that anybody does. It really is, you know, it's almost like when you talk about the start of the MCU and if Marvel Studios owned the rights to Spider-Man, would they have started with him? Um, Because he is the most worldwide recognizable and somewhat relatable character, but they had to start with Iron Man. Um, I just think if you think back to your childhood, uh, everybody of a certain age, you know, I'm in my late 40s. 
Spider-Man was prevalent when we were kids. He was in animated television shows. The 1960s show was probably still playing in syndication. He would be in Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends. Um, he just was a popular character for people to tell stories for, way more so than someone like an Iron Man or a Captain America that didn't really pop up in different media. But you can even think about just how much Spider-Man was involved in in toys and lunchboxes and all these different places where the company put him. It, you know, you could say that they were almost like forcing him down our throats at some point, but he was just popular and and again relatable. And while we talk about like the Hulk, you know, having his show, which was definitely uh, groundbreaking at that time, and still has some cultural impact. People talk about the Hulk at that point. Um, it really was the push for Spider-Man, and especially in that sort of late '80s, early '90s, as they were working towards getting Spider-Man, a Spider-Man project up and running. Even though Blade and the X-Men sort of dropped at the same time that Spider-Man did, it was Spider-Man that just skyrocketed to global phenomena. It's because of, you know, people look at that character and they find him relatable. Yeah. Um, uh, so so then we, we move on to the, uh, again, there's a kind of period of disputed rights that runs through much of the 80s and 90s. Uh, Golan and Globus, the guys who, who you know, were making movies for, with canon. Uh, and then James Cameron, of course, uh, takes takes a crack at it. Really wants to tell us the Cameron story. Obviously, James Cameron very much in the news right now with new uh, with Avatar, you know, the way of water hitting theaters here in a in a uh, a week or so. Um, but uh, he, you know, he almost made a Spider Man movie. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because there are different. Uh, signposts throughout the course of Spider-Man's history that if certain things had happened, we would have gone down a different road and it might have changed, you know, not just the superhero comic book story genre, but the film industry as a whole. And Cameron's is a great example. Um, he was, you know, around the time of Terminator and T2 uh, and was looking for his next project. He kind of, he's been a comic book fan his entire life. Uh, he seemed like the type of director that you would want to get involved in the superhero genre because of the way that he blends visual effects with his storytelling. Um, and he had been pitched uh, or he went in to pitch an X-Men movie uh, with Catherine Bigelow at the time. She was going to direct it and he was going to produce. Um, and instead, Stan Lee kind of said, I hear you also like Spider-Man. And that was a, that was it. Like if Cameron, once he found out that Spider-Man was available, he kind of went down that road. So there is a, a, a treatment that exists out there. And it's about 28, 29 pages that you can read through of, of how he would have laid out Spider-Man's origin. And, and in that treatment, there are different things that then show up in the Sam Raimi um, origin story like the idea of making the uh the web spinners organic to peter you know and not being the mechanized thing that goes on his wrists that was cameron's idea originally uh cameron wanted there were conversations of him maybe working with dicaprio uh, as his peter parker and potentially wanting arnold schwarzenegger to play his auto octavius who knows if these things would have come to pass um but it's just because cameron couldn't get the rights freed up like he he begged fox to try to get in there and spend the money that they would have had to spend to to claim the theatrical rights uh and they could they didn't want to put up the five million dollars or something that it would have cost in order to get them and cameron's like you don't understand you're sitting on a billion dollar idea here um and so you know when i think about that because this Instead, he didn't make the Spider-Man movie uh, and he went on to make Titanic. Now, if he doesn't do that, you know, how different is the film industry moving forward? Uh, how much power does Cameron have? What if he did three Spider-Man movies in a row because the first one took off? It's just, I love looking at those big picture things and just thinking how different things could have been the what ifs of the Hollywood uh, history there. Or what if he made one Spider-Man movie and then didn't make another one for 13 years, which is 
also possible, you know. I think <laughs> yeah, that, that's his time frame. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, it's, it is fascinating. It's fascinating to think about. I mean, and as you mentioned, you know, at this time, Marvel's in a very weird place. This is before they're, this is obviously well before they're bought by Disney. Um, this is, uh, you know, kind of in the midst of the, the 1990s comic boom, but also like as that wave is cresting and coming down. And, yeah. you know, at this point, Marvel's actually owned by a toy company. Yes, Toy Biz was the company, and and that's Avi Arad and Ike Perlmutter, who if you have a passing knowledge of of the comic book movies and and the contributions of these people, um, Avi gets, you know, a lot of heat for for decisions that he's made, creative decisions that he helped to sort of push as the movies went on. But I try to emphasize in the book, because I honestly believe this, he is, you know, essential to the formation of the of Marvel films, because he was the one in those early stages knocking on the studio doors. Uh, and, and he went from New York to Los Angeles specifically because he knew that the future of those Marvel characters was in movies. Now, he absolutely considered the movies to be long form commercials for the for the toys that they were going to sell. Um, and his partner, Ike Perlmutter, who is a nickel and dimer, you know, hated how much Avi thought he had to spend to look like a player in Hollywood. But that's why the Marvel rights were divided up amongst multiple studios at the time, because Avi would get a deal with 20th Century Fox to make an X-Men movie and a deal with New Line to make a Blade movie. Um, but no studio would go all in on the pitch of here are all of our characters will you please take them and what breaks my heart is there's a story in the book about how sony uh, had an opportunity at one point to own the entire library except for the ones that were available at fox which was the x-men and fantastic four uh and sony said no we don't want we have no interest in all those other characters we only want spider-man um and the, you know they just balked at the the price tag for it which i think at that time was about 25 million dollars and if you think about the fact that sony could have been where disney is now you know had they just taken a gamble and, and bought all those characters but that's how they ended up with Spider-Man and are still holding on to Spider-Man, although the book gets onto, into how they eventually learned to collaborate with Marvel. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to think like $25 million is, you know, one half of one Robert Downey Jr. paycheck <laughs> yes, at, at, yeah, at, right. towards the tail end of his run at, at Marvel. Uh, just a crazy, um, a crazy figure. All right. So so we as as we go along here we start getting into the comic book era and i am i'm a big blade guy i always say blade is the forgotten movie uh you know that really kicked off the whole marvel boom sure and obviously x-men you know i like everybody remembers i remember reading wizard magazine uh when the x-men movie was being made and like following like oh my god they were actually gonna do this it's gonna be amazing um and it was it was fine but that but spider-man is the the big uh, the the big movie that really kicks off the whole blockbuster era of superhero filmmaking. Uh, tell us about the, um, the 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 business response to that because I mean I do think that I I do I I think your book I mean we'll see how the future progresses but I do think your book makes a a credible argument that we have basically bracketed this superhero era with Spider Man and then No Way Home um, right at one no, end and I, the other yeah um, I think so that's fair. So tell us tell us about the the making of Spider-Man and kind of the business response to that. Well, one of the things that I really wanted to get at when putting together, um, especially the stuff around Raimi's first movie, is just the work that went into um, 
translating that character from the page of a comic book to live action because I really felt that it was the first movie, you know, Donner's Superman gets a lot of credit for convincing people that, you know, that that character was flying. Um, and then Burton's uh, uh, first Batman movie was a very, very popular film and, ex ex you know, extremely successful in the marketplace, but had Tim Burton's stamp all over it. But I, th I think that Raimi's Spider-Man was the first one that was as close to comic accurate and really treated the source material uh, with the sort of reverence that now we see uh, on a regular basis to these movies. It's essentially Amazing Fantasy number 15, which is Spider-Man's first appearance, uh, retold through Raimi's filter. And so I wanted to speak with people like John Dykstra, who was the um, head of visual effects, um, and Don Burgess, who was the uh, production designer working with Raimi, because I felt like the decisions that they had made early on in 2002 or 2001, 2002 to create this world created a blueprint for how movies going forward had to remain as faithful as possible to the source material because they created a New York that looked like it came right out of uh, the Stanley Steve Ditko early 1960s comics. Tobey Maguire was the nerdy Peter Parker, you know, who who couldn't get the girl and who was kind of bullied by Flash Thompson. And those elements remained. They kept the heart and the core of, of what was important to Spider-Man. You know, you think about right before that, you were seeing things like Dolph Lundgren's Punisher and, and you know, movies that, that sort of played fast and loose with the rules of it. Um, but I think that that, that first Spider-Man movie connected with the global audience that it did because of how faithful it was to the stories. And now Amy Pascal, who's been a producer on these Spider-Man movies since the first one, um, she is the first one to admit, and I think she's learning a lot from Kevin Feige, that the books are there, you know, as the the source material to lean on, and and they're successful because of you know what's in the books. So just stick to it, you know, tell those stories and and hit those character beats, and then your movie should succeed. The further you get away from from what makes the book special, what makes Marvel, uh, you know, the the globally uh, adored company that it is, is that the stories that they're putting together work so well for those heroes. And when the movies adapt them properly, uh, then I think they take off. And that's what I think Raimi did. Yeah, I mean, it it is uh, it's it's interesting to go back and watch some of those uh, the 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 first Raimi movies, uh, in part because I, I, I rewatched them before No Way Home came out and I saw Kevin Feige's name come up. I was like, oh, that's interesting. He's been here <laughs> since the beginning. Uh, yes. Good for him. Um, uh, but also just like the, the images in that movie really are ripped from the pages of, of a comic book in a way that I just don't, I don't, I don't think, you know, had, had been done prior to that. The one that always jumps out at me is the, uh, in the final fight with Goblin, there's this shot of Spider-Man with like half his mask torn off. And I'm like, I remember Todd McFarlane drawing that, <laughs> uh, you know, in yeah. 1989 or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it made me feel old, but also, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I did. But I do wonder from your I mean, look, you're 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 a fan. You're you're uh, I would I I say this with with all, you know, due respect, a nerd like me. You, you kind of you. Of you know, um, I do wonder if there has been too if if things have gone too far to uh, appeal to the fans too much. Do you ever do you hmm. ever do you ever get that sense from folks you talk to or, uh, you know, on the creative? side of things that they worry about, you know, pandering a little bit too much to, to people like us? Absolutely. I mean, if you go back to those early Raimi films, it's, it's something like social media didn't exist. So you couldn't get the instant wave of feedback, you know, in terms of how your stuff is being uh, 
accepted or rejected. And you think about um, the Disney Plus shows, uh, which I think right now the Marvel Disney Plus shows uh, cater significantly to trying to get certain characters, you know, out into the marketplace so that, but I'm not quite sure that, that Marvel knows how they're going to be using them moving forward. So in this case, like where you might see a Moon Knight or, or Miss Marvel and enjoy that storyline, there's no bigger picture, there's no bigger plan for how they're going to be rolled in. I kind of liked when, when Marvel was, and it's not that I don't like what the MCU is doing now, but I liked when Marvel was doing standalone <laughs> movies that you didn't it didn't have to tease into the next four or five other projects that uh you know that are building to a bigger uh a bigger franchise and, and that's some of the things i talk a little bit about in the book is how other companies like warner brothers and sony made the mistake of trying to chase after that universe building um and how it was to their detriment because they couldn't you know i do think marvel has had some um some breaks along the way like there are places when the marvel cinematic universe probably should have gone off the rails uh and maybe it's kevin feige and maybe it's just the luck of when certain films came out but they were man they managed to keep it all together for the infinity saga now you're right it is it is more fan service it is more the inclusion of certain characters who may never pay off. Like Harry Styles will show up in the end credit scene of Eternals. We don't know if we're ever gonna see the Eternals again, let alone whoever character was introduced. So maybe they do, do need to rein it back. You know, Maybe they need to get a little bit under control or potentially it's part of a bigger picture that Kevin Feige knows and we just don't right now. Yeah, I do remember watching the Eternals and for the first time being stumped by a character introduction, just be like, who? Who is I, Harry yep. Styles here? I don't I don't understand. I have no idea what's happening right now. How weird is it that we both know Pip the Troll, <laughs> but don't know who Harry Styles is playing? It's, yeah. it's yeah. unusual. Uh, uh, so let's, uh, so, you know, I, again, one of the interesting what ifs in the story is what if Spider-Man 4? Um, you, you, with Sam Raimi, you, you uh, looked at some of the storyboards for that, right? You talk about that a little I, bit in the book. I did, yes. I got a chance to interview uh, Jeffrey Henderson, who did a lot of the creative work behind the scenes on putting that story together and was working hand in hand um, with Raimi to try to do what he looked at, at, what he viewed as like a redeeming project. He wanted to get back to the heart of the first two Spider-Man movies after uh, part three really, you know, was bogged down by a bunch of decisions that weren't necessarily Raimi's. Um, it's, it's famous now at this point that he didn't like Venom as a character and that Av this is where Avi Arad gets a lot of his flack is because he he believed that Venom was an extremely popular character with the kids and, and that it would sell a lot of toys and that was his gut instinct was to push it forward. And I get Avi, you know, to, to admit in the in the book that he probably, you know, was wrong to push Sam to do a villain that that he didn't have his heart behind. And so, but it's interesting, Sonny, is that, you know, at the time before the, the Marvel Sony Spider-Man films, Spider-Man 3 was the highest grossing one in the franchise up to that point. So while it's critically, you know, ridiculed and fans will point at it as the, the low point, uh, it was a blockbuster phenomena and gave Sony a bit of a, you know, overconfidence, I think, to say that like, hey, anything that we put out that has Spider-Man's name on it is going to do really, really well. And that feeds into what might have gone wrong with Andrew's uh, franchise as they tried to get that off the ground. Yeah, let's so let's move to the Amazing Spider-Man uh, series of movies. Two two movies directed by Mark Webb uh, that that follow the Raimi films and are kind of before Tom Holland goes into the MCU. Um, a bit of I, I like almost a bit of a lost period for for some folks. I, I mean, these are still massively these were still you know massively uh, massive grocers still still made lots of money, but not enough money, uh, which yeah. is why yeah. which is why uh, that 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 whole experiment came to an end. Um, 
I get the sense from reading your book that Andrew Garfield is almost a tragic, a tragic heroic figure in this story. He's a guy who loves Spider-Man, who just who, who really wanted to to do it, and uh, is just getting hemmed in at every uh, at every avenue by things he doesn't want to do or things that aren't good for the character. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and it is, you know, like not that I'm trying to say Toby took the part. You know, just because it was a part, but I don't think that he had the passion for the character the way that Andrew did coming into the role. Like Andrew's a, a legitimate diehard Spider-Man fan, grew up on on the character and wanted to do right by it. Really cared what the fans thought of his interpretation and wanted to pour his passion into it. Um, but this was also what I found pretty interesting in putting the the timeline together of the films is how the the movies that came right before the ones that had been made would affect the d- decisions that had, that were being made to, to do so. So say for like The Amazing Spider-Man, they wanted to specifically make sure they did things that didn't mirror the Raimi films. And then by the time you get to Tom Holland and the MCU, they want to do things that are completely different from the other two franchises that come before it. So not only are you dealing with like fan expectation, uh, but you're dealing with just creative choices that you have to make because of the movies that came before it. And so with... Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, they go far more grounded. You know, that was, you remember the period of films that came after the the Nolan Batman films, everybody was going for dark and gritty. Um, so they tried to filter Spider-Man's story through dark and gritty. It's interesting with Andrew too, I think his Peter Parker was never quite the nerd. Like he's an outcast, you know, but I'm not calling that kid uncool. You know, yeah. <laughs> he's still, yeah. I'd want to hang out with that kid if I was at his school. Um, they have to choose villains that hadn't been shown up before. So he gets saddled with like the lizard who's not the most compelling villain. Um, and then the problem with Amazing Spider-Man 2, I believe, is that Amy Pascal kind of saw the writing on the wall that like they were losing the fan base or they didn't quite know 100% what to do with the character. So in Amazing Spider-Man 2, they tried very hard to launch the cinematic universe with just one film. Um, and by the time that movie, before that movie had even hit theaters, they had parts three and four announced on the calendar. They had Drew Goddard, who had done Cabin in the Woods, was working on a Sinister Six movie. Like they were just putting the cart way before the horse and saying, this is what we're gonna do. Um, And then it all fell apart when, as you said, they didn't make enough money. And it's funny that like, we still see that problem now. Like Black Adam is facing that problem right now of they're teasing out a Black Adam and Superman movie, but but we are learning that Black Adam didn't do that well at theaters. And so we may never see that film again. And this happens in the comic book genre all too often. And uh, again, sort of cut Andrew's franchise off at the knees. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's fascinating to go back and watch that movie because there are like six different films in it. There are, there are, I, 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 at the time I was angry and I'm still kind of annoyed by it, um, that they, they basically toss in the death of Gwen Stacy plotline as a like tertiary plot. It is just like, it is buried under six different stories. Um, and and I, I there's no 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 wonder it didn't work. I mean, it just is. It was it it is it, as you it had strong dark universe vibes is how I like to think of it. You know, that's a good way to put it for sure. Yes. Um, and I mean, yeah, like you point out, there's so many subplots that are just arguing. You know, elbowing each other out of the way for space. And and I think that there are things in, in Amazing Spider-Man two that work really really well. Um, but you can't overlook the things that just don't that they, they don't go anywhere. And so um, yeah, it became a weird sort of Frankenstein mishmash. Uh, that eventually led to what I think is a really, you know, groundbreaking uh, partnership, which is Sony agreeing to turn one of their characters over to a competing studio. Like, 
I try to emphasize in the book and I still don't know if I get the point across. Like that just doesn't happen. Yeah. A studio doesn't give up one of their assets, you know, a major IP to a, to a rival. But Sony looked across the street and just said, Marvel's doing so well with this. Let's figure this out. Well, let's let's talk about that a little bit because you're right. It's fascinating. Like this is a this is a, a huge partnership. It's obviously very interesting. There are lots of ins and outs here. But the thing that I that I learned from your book, I didn't I actually didn't know this, um, was that Marvel was in charge of casting Spider-Man, yes. casting Tom Holland as Spider-Man, which I, 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 you know, I probably should have known. But I had I did not realize that that was uh, that was done by a Marvel casting director. Uh, for, yeah, Sarah specifically Finn. for Civil War. Yeah, Seraphin, who is in charge of most of the casting at Marvel. And honestly, Sonny, it's just Amy Pascal had reached a point where she just stopped trusting her instincts, you know, and had to turn over as much of it to Kevin Feige because the decisions that she was making were proving to not work necessarily, even though she had the best intentions at hand. You know, she she didn't go into Amazing Spider-Man trying to make bad movies without a doubt. She loves the character. She really wishes that it worked, that it worked out uh, at Sony and especially for Andrew. And that's kind of why I love so much how No Way Home gives him, you know, a bit of a redemptive arc. Um, but they had to turn over everything to Kevin Feige and just say, like, what you're doing is working. So please help us with Spider-Man, make him work. And there are, you know, notes passed between Amy and Kevin that just say, like, please come save, you know, this character. Please save him from what I've done to him. They tried to uh, get Sam Raimi to come back and say, please help us save Peter. We've lost our way with him, essentially. But turning him over completely to the MCU and just letting him make those decisions is what has gotten us to where we are with Tom Holland. Yeah. So let's talk about that deal. How did that how did that deal actually work on a on a financial level? What was the revenue split like? Because it's a really interesting deal that they they set up between the the two shops. So Sony essentially would uh, distribute the films, uh, but Disney was going to do a Disney and Marvel. were going to do everything creatively in order to to make them happen. Uh, And so there was a um, marketing share and then there's a merchandise share that would that gave uh, Sony essentially 95% of everything that was earned and that Marvel would get 5% of what they uh, took home. But it allowed them to use Spider-Man in their movies and essentially they needed him for um, Infinity War and Endgame. Those are the places where they necessarily wanted to set him up. And, and for that opportunity and to appear in Captain America Civil War. For that, they would creatively help out with Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home and then what would eventually become No Way Home. But before No Way Home, the deal even fell through a bit because Disney pushed back and said, hey, we want more of a 50-50 split because we think that we're doing all the work here. And not only are we doing all the work and you guys are just distributing these these pictures, but Kevin now, Kevin Feige, is tied up in so many other projects. He's you know trying to shepherd the Disney Plus series forward. He's got all these Marvel Phase 4 and Phase 5 movies. Um, and they just figured Sony would would you know kowtow to them and say like oh of course we'll go with the 50-50 split uh, just please keep helping us and Sony to their credit they were like no you know that's okay we'll we'll keep Spider-Man and and you guys good luck keep doing what you're doing um, and for a little while not very long a couple of weeks maybe the the deal was off and and Spider-Man was back over at Sony and this was after Far From Home so No Way Home was not happening yet. And the fans started to freak out. And to be honest, Tom Holland started to freak out a little bit because he was like, hey, things are going really well over at uh, Marvel. I really like 
collaborating with those guys. Um, but now you're going back over to Sony, and Sony at that point had kind of proven that they didn't necessarily know how to handle the character correctly. And in fact, what they were doing on their own was creating these Venom films and maybe rolling out Morbius, which was going to be, um, you know, it looked bad <laughs> from the get-go. And so, uh, you know, but then they were able to sort of rectify what had happened um, and then and then piece everything back together. So there, there, it's funny. There's a story I remember from when this happened. There, there's a funny story in your book about uh, Holland and Bob Iger, uh, kind <laughs> of getting in touch with each other to you know try and try and mend the fences here. Well, what I loved about this too is because right before that happened, um, Tom Holland essentially goes to D23, and he's promoting Pixar's film Onward, uh, of which he was voicing characters with Chris Pratt and Julia Louis Dreyfus. And he tells a story that he went backstage at the convention at Anaheim and there were a bunch of Marvel guys there, Marvel actors, and they were all getting together and taking pictures. And Tom Holland says to himself, like, am I even contractually allowed to, like, show up in pictures with these guys? Like, he didn't even know where he stood between the two studios. So he goes off to London, you know, kind of dejected, goes back home. He's in this kind of limbo where he thinks now he's going to be in Sony's universe and he doesn't get to play in the Marvel sandbox anymore. And um, he reaches out to Bob Iger's assistant and just says, hey, if I can get a chance to get on the phone with Bob, I just want to thank him for the opportunity he gave me and and letting me come over and be Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which was really historic. You know, this is he was going to be Spider-Man in the MCU and that's going to go down in history as that way forever and was beloved. Like he was definitely people loved his interpretation of it. Um, and a couple of days go by and he doesn't hear anything back from Iger, who's, of course, extremely busy. Uh, and then uh, Tom gets a cell phone call one night when he's out at a pub uh, at Trivia Night, which he is a huge fan of doing Trivia Night here in, in London. I'm actually in London right now as we're speaking. And um, he's a couple of pints in at this point, uh, the way he describes it. And he answers the phone regardless. And it's Bob Iger. And he kind of gives this gushing pitch of just why... Uh, they should figure out a way to work together. He loves being Spider-Man. He thinks the MCU needs Spider-Man moving forward. Uh, can they figure out a way to work it out? And I, whether Bob Iger was just moved by the pitch or whether he also agreed that it was in everyone's best interest you know, to keep Spider-Man in the MCU, um, Iger and Kevin Feige and all the executives over at Sony uh, came up with a compromise that is at least going to allow Tom to appear in a few more films and then make No Way Home, which, you know, ended up becoming one of the highest grossing movies of all time. Yeah, I, which which kind of brings me to my my parting thought here, which is that I do I do wonder if we if if Spider-Man both like kind of kicks off and ends the the era of total comic book dominance, um, because I, I just don't know that we will ever see. I mean, look. I this is a fool's this is a fool's game here to predict what will happen in the world of box office and and hmm. any of that. But you know, I just I I do wonder if if the if if the creation of Disney Plus combined with you know just general Marvel fatigue, et cetera, et cetera, um, has led to a point where I don't know that we will ever have another nearly two billion dollar grossing comic book movie like that. I, I wonder I wonder if this is if this is it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to, you know, make a prediction uh, yourself here, but I, I'm just curious what you what you make of the landscape now as it as it sits. I completely agree with you. Um, not that the bloom is fully off the rose, but it's not nearly as um, engrossing in the casual landscape, you know, as it's always going to appeal to, I think, you know, nerds like us who are just interested in what Marvel is doing next kind of thing. 
But we're at a stage now where fans are admitting that they skip movies, you know, or don't even engage with some of the television shows. And that wasn't the case with Marvel. Like when Marvel was going through phases one through three, every single thing that they put out was, you know, the center of, of attention. And they can still put out, you know, it's remarkable that they put out a Doctor Strange movie that will, a, a Doctor Strange sequel, you know, that will earn as much money as it does. And we're seeing things in the MCU that that fans could have never dreamed possible. Like Namor is attacking Wakanda, you know, in a Marvel movie. Who would have thought we would ever get to that point? But I think you're right. I mean, I, I talk about the golden age of comic book movies and I didn't believe this when I was writing it necessarily because I think I, I didn't sort of lift my head up to kind of pay that much attention to what was happening. But I do think it's kind of coming to a close or, you know, or slowing down at the very least. And I don't know what will replace it, but we see genres come and go in Hollywood all the time, you know, and you could point to like the Western that lasted for 50 some odd years or something. And people still make the, the random um, Western nowadays, a contemporary Western. But there's a saturation. There's such a saturation in the market because you can look to Amazon Prime with the boys or, you know, Peacemaker uh, going over to HBO Max and, you know, any streaming platform you got on, people are trying to get some type of superhero story uh, going out there. And that's in addition to the stuff that DC is doing and and the Sony universe that they're doing with like all these, you know, spider related characters that I mentioned branching into animation with, you know, into the Spider-Verse and all these different things. And it's, after a while, it does, even as someone who like me, who loves it all, it gets to be too much. And so you could look at No Way Home as almost like the bookend to it, if you consider, you know, Raimi's first one to be one of the pioneers. Yeah. Uh, all right. That was uh, everything I wanted to ask you or everything I wanted to, to talk about. What did I what did I fail to ask? What do you think folks should know about Spider-Man, uh, your book? I mean, we, you know, we we didn't we just touched on some of the some of the hits here. I, if there's anything you think folks should know more about, uh, <laughs> uh, let me know. One of the things that I just love the most about it is that everybody who worked on Spider-Man at different levels, their passion for it, I think, shines through. Um, and especially as we get into the No Way Home stuff, which you know, broke such ground to bring back in Toby and Andrew and to hear them talk about like, that was the one of the most fun parts of, of this book is writing that stuff because I was getting so close to having to deliver the manuscript, but all the No Way Home stuff was happening at that moment. So I was able to get a lot of really fresh quotes in about these guys talking about how important it was for them to return to the franchise. And in a way that movie was like proving my point. It was proving of how um, successful Spider-Man is and how much he means to different people and why he is such a global phenomena. And those guys talking about the impact that these movies have had on their career and, and their audiences, I think just went you know further in terms of like backing up my premise, which is that no one else is like Spider-Man out there. The closest thing is probably Batman, you know, in terms of the um, the number of uh, films that are made about him and the different ways that he branches into animation and television and stuff like that. But Spider-Man holds a very special place, and I'm not quite sure that we're going to see another character that comes close to replicating what they've been able to do with him in terms of uh, Hollywood storytelling. And so I hope that I, I gave his story justice. All right, Sean, thank you for being on the show. Again, this is Sean O'Connell. His book is With Great Power, uh, How Spider-Man Conquered Hollywood During the Golden Age of Comic Blockbusters. Um, comic book blockbusters, I'm sorry. Uh, and it's available on Amazon. I'll link to it in the email. You go go check it out there. Um, uh, and uh, pick it up for the spider fan in your life for Christmas. Um, uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. Uh, I am culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.